Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview multiple Grammy Award winner, drummer, producer, and educator, Terry Lynn Collington. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have another legend in the jazz world, Terry Lynn Collington. Thank you for joining us, ma'am. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. And even though the Grammys got pushed back, we wish you the best on that ahead of time. Oh, thanks. Yeah. (laughs) Another six weeks of biting your fingernails. I mean, this is for your... Fourth one, you'll be up for, correct? Um, Fourth win. Well, yeah, yes. Yes. The way that works is very interesting. I was nominated in uh, 1989 for uh, an album that did not win, my debut album. Um, but technically, this is my fourth nomination, even though I won three already because I won the next two I was nominated for. And then I won for an album I was not nominated for because when you're a producer, you're not a nominee, but you receive a Grammy if that record wins. So when I won for Diane Reeves' Beautiful Life, I'm considered a winner, but not a nominee. So it's strange how that all works. But now I'm a nominee again. uh, So, yeah. (laughs) I mean, at the end of the day, I'm jealous of people like you. You have three already looking at another one. And we're going to talk about the waiting game a lot, but could you please give to people who don't know a short summary about yourself, like your education, where you're currently based? Oh, um, my education is from the school of jazz, school of jazz legends, school of hard knocks from the street, from, uh, you know, the continuum that exists from apprenticeship and mentorship from the people that are out there doing it. So that's the real way to learn how to play jazz. Um, as far as formal education, that's cool and that's important, um, but it's not the same. And it's, uh, these days, a combination of both um, are pretty necessary. Um, I'm from Boston originally, born and raised uh, in the suburb of Boston. So I started going to Berkeley at 11 years old. I got a scholarship there and uh, I only went three semesters full time once I was 17. And then I moved to New York when I was 18 and came back to Boston um, to teach at Berkeley in 2005. So I was gone from this area for about 22 years. Um, And then now I've been back here about 15 years. And between all that, I mean, I've played with so so yeah. many people, I wouldn't really be able to sit here and, and, and list. But uh, some of the people that I think had the biggest influence and effects on me in my career would be Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock, people I've had a long affiliation with, as well as uh, Jack DeJanette, who's, you know, a big mentor of mine, um, Clark Terry was the first gig I ever had. Uh, and then also I did some late night television vibe 
TV show as well as the Arsenio Hall show. Played three years with Al Jarreau, too. Played some with the Yellow Jackets. Uh, played some with Layla Hathaway and Joe Sample. Um, just, you know, a whole lot of different experiences. But at my core, um, when I started recording again, you know, at my core, uh, I'm a jazz musician that sometimes does other things. Now, you do everything. That's one thing I got to say to you. Uh, but just one question. I know you got your scholarship off the help of Ella Fitzgerald. How did you meet her? Oh, uh, so you must have read that recent article because I never really told that story until recently. Um, I met so many people uh, at a young age because of my dad. He knew pretty much everybody in jazz. And if he didn't know them, he knew how to get to know them um, because he was a jazz musician himself. And um, my grandfather was as well. So there's a legacy of the music in my family. Um, my grandfather was a local drummer in the Boston area and played with people when they came through town and did, uh, you know, the type of gigs where you pick up a band. So if Duke Ellington or Sammy Davis Jr. or Fats Waller came through town and needed a drummer, um, he would be somebody that they would call. And then my father did the same thing when he was in school in Georgia and Virginia when R&B groups like James Brown and Ruth Brown and um, Otis Redding would come through town and need to pick up horn section. So uh, when he came back uh, to Boston after being in school a few years, um, you know, he started doing other things to make a living, just like my grandfather did, because um, it's difficult to make a living if you have a family playing music, if you, um, you know, weren't in that group of people that were traveling, you know, all over. And uh, he just knew so many people. So when I started playing, he was able to introduce me and bring me to places and, you know, bring me to clubs and, and say, you know, my daughter plays and she's, Sounds good, you know, give her a shot and they will let me sit in with them. And it was all very encouraging. Um, and I have this amazing opportunity because of my dad. And I realized that most people don't have that, you know, male or female. So as far as Ella was concerned, you know, we would just be backstage my, because of my dad's relationships. And um, she would let me hang out with her in the dressing room. Sometimes she would kick everybody else out, but I think because I was so young you know I was not you know I was disarming you know so she would let me hang hang out and then uh she we were sitting backstage once while Oscar Peterson was playing and then she um took me over to him and said you know you need to meet this little girl you should hear her and he did immediately as this concert had just finished but then we went back out and the president of uh, Berkeley was there him and his wife and they gave me a scholarship that's an amazing story. <laughs> and yes, that's where I got it from. But I did speak to you a little bit in like 2012. You performed at the Village Vanguard. You were performing mm -hmm. with Esperanza and you're performing with Jerry Allen, mm -hmm. Peter, rest in peace, sir. And the three of you blew me away, literally. <laughs> so, oh, man. thank well, you. Yeah. Missing there, Jerry. Yeah. 
Yeah. I feel you for that. (laughs) (laughs) And one other thing is like, I always loved the fact that you were pushing a lot of female jazz artists with you. And hence why I'm asking you to come on for the first episode of Women's Month on the show. Well, you need to have women all, all year through, not just... No, I do. I had one of my favorite <laughs> other female drummers, Allison Miller, come on. Okay, good. Yes. I'm just, uh, you know, I, I can't stand Black History Month and Women's Month. I mean, I understand people do it in this marketing, but in general, I, I have such an aversion to that because it it it, it creates, you know, furthers the separation. Uh, I think it, you know... Well, people have to really start looking at all of this being uh, all year round, though we tend to work more in these months. <laughs> one reason why I'm glad to have you on, so you could talk about that more. But no, nah, I think I have a good mm-hmm. amount of females come on. And some of them schooled mm-hmm. me in the past. Some of them are just class acts. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, w- women are um, going to, you know, some are going to. Uh, women are just as diverse as, as men, right? So um, you can't expect all women to be the same. And uh, everybody's view and, and opinion is different and the way they express it is different. Um, some women don't want to be bothered with uh, talking about gender equity. I used to be one of them uh, because it feels like it's separating them from, you know, what we've had to be in order to be successful, which is just like one of the dudes. And you work your whole life to be accepted, you know, in that way. So then you don't want to, um, you know, create this segregation, so to say. So it's really interesting and complex problem, you know, an issue. And I would say, I would just encourage you to use the word women instead of females. My mistake. No no worries. I'm just encouraging you. (laughs) So, uh, any personal situations you had in terms of that that you're willing to share? Uh, What what kind of situations? Just from wages, from performances, from touring. Um, This is. Did you say wages? Yeah. Did you actually? Sure. I mean, you know, traditionally, women in business and the business world and every other occupation. Have gotten paid less than men and uh, their male counterparts, and you know, with with jazz, since there's no real organization behind it, there's no real union, you know, for us. I mean, there's a musicians' union, but that also has more to do with recording and you know, television and you know, all that, opposed to how we mostly work, which is gigging, uh, and often outside of the country. Um, so there's no checks and balances, no human resources and no uh, postings of fees, uh, all that. So you just, it's harder, you know, to know uh, about this kind of equity and with wages. It's definitely, there's not a system in place that really lets us know that. Other than, you know, if you're working at a college or university or with an organization that has to have these kinds of things to report. Um, so it's interesting, you know, we try to move the needle forward and hope that that kind of equity is in place. I know I do, um, but you never really know uh, until you hear things <laughs> as far as fees and all that. But um, I haven't had any 
harassment, so to say, not any overt harassment in my life. Uh, I'm not the type of person that I think somebody feels like they can get over on. Um, I'm very clear, uh, you know, outspoken in control of my life. You know, I'll curse somebody out if I need to. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, it's not good. like, yeah, of course. I mean, that's just my personality though. But everybody's not the same and we shouldn't have to be a certain personality um, to demand respect. So that's the problem with this. Uh, you shouldn't have to be, you know, I'm somebody that's happened to get along well in all male or mostly male situations. Um, but I can easily see how this would be difficult for somebody with a different personality. Um, I always tell the story when I was 10 years old and met Buddy Rich and he said, uh, I said, somebody introduced us and he said to me, oh yeah, well you better not be any good. And I was 10 and I said, well, who's going to stop me? So I think that's something that's an innate in it as a personality trait. And I also grew up with that kind of support that allows confidence. And um, I always had ownership in the music. And I learned at a young age that, you know, I just keep striving to be the best Terry Lynn Carrington that I can be and not really compare myself to others. And that allows also for a certain confidence um, and understanding of how we're not separate from our art. So, um, you know, I don't really need to try to be somebody else. And, um, yeah, I just feel like uh, as we're working through you know, these issues of gender, these are all things that we have to encourage and foster and work toward. But the main thing is that the, the way people learn the music is through uh, opportunities. You know, they have to play with people that know more than them. They have to play with, uh, you know, other great artists to get better. They have to be able to go to jam sessions. Um, so there's a certain level of mentoring and apprenticeship that has to happen. And I don't see quite enough of that. And, and I don't see enough concern uh, about, you know, opening this up more and doing what, because a lot of people will say, uh, I'll, I'll hire a woman if she can play. And so I'm saying that that's not good enough. That does not mean that you're doing anything with gender equity unless you're willing to help. What would you suggest somebody do then? Well, I suggest that they mentor. That's what I'm trying to say. Mentor an apprentice and hire somebody with potential. I got hired sometimes, you know, because of potential. Um, and it helped my development, you know, because somebody saw that I want to contribute to this. Like Wayne Shorter, when I was 21, I mean... I'm not sure that when I auditioned that I was, you know, when I started playing with him that I had arrived at some certain level of playing. Uh, but he saw my potential and wanted to be a part of helping to develop me. And that's what I'm asking for. That's what everybody needs to challenge themselves because he understood back then, and this was 1986 or, or seven, and uh, he you know, this is the future. You know, we have to have gender equity. We have to have, you know, diversity. We have to have age uh, 
age diversity too. You know, he you know it's important to bring up young people and it's the future. You know, he would say in interviews, I I read science fiction books, and in science fiction books is women and children that are making things happen and leading the way. Um, and as simple as that sounds, you know, that's not really you know the philosophy of so many people. Um, so yeah. That's that's what I'm. I, I would ask and request of. of so just in terms of like recording opportunities for the next generation, do you feel that some of these record labels or groups in general? Because I can tell you from my experience, when I had a recording, just getting it known, like how should I say, mm-hmm. promoting it in general, was something that killed me. At least mm-hmm. the first time around. What is your suggestion? What, what do you play? I'm a percussionist, ma'am. Oh, okay. Uh, like a hand percussionist? No, I can play uh, all that stuff. Latino. I can play the kit, man. Okay. Cool. Um, well, yeah, I mean, recording has become so independent. And I think we the greatest thing that has happened is we stopped relying on labels and gatekeepers to make the music that we want to make. Now, of course... It, it involves to get your music out there. It involves a knowledge on how to do that, and it involves more work on our end and uh, to make competitive products. Um, but the beauty is, you can then really spend your time and energy and money on doing that, and not needing permission from somebody else. And uh, you make a good enough product, and, and and really understand some real basics in marketing and getting the product to people and for people to know that it's available and it's there, uh, you can be just as competitive um, as somebody that has a label, a, a, a regular traditional label deal. So I just think that... Um, well, I agree you know, the, with you on that because <laughs> I don't think the whole social science experiment would have passed on a lot of these traditional labels. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, I my last um, couple of records before that, I think it was three. Yeah, my last three records before that came out on Concord, um, and even though I was licensing, it wasn't a traditional deal, and I was doing one record at a time. I knew that that wasn't the place for social science. I didn't even go there. Um, you know, I, I went to a smaller boutique label, Motema. Um, because I felt like the owner of that label would understand this record and her team uh, of people would understand this record. And that's exactly what happened. So um, you have to, you know, understand that I think the industry and, you know, follow the universe. I think when you do something and you're in tune, you know, with what's going on around you, the universe supports, uh, supports you. You know, you have to sometimes, you know, and work hard, of course, and invest in yourself sometimes and pay attention, you know, to uh, the pathways that are open, open to you and not um, kind of be on one track and figure, you know, this is what I want to, this is the way I'm going to do it and really just be open to how the universe can support you. And um, that's what I try to do every time. Well, the universe seemed to be right on step with you. With this last album, <laughs> just oh, trapped you. in the American dream, bells, and I want to say no justice. I believe that was the other third one I'm thinking of off the top of my head. 
mm-hmm. came out at the right time just before the, everything that happened over the summer. Mm-hmm. How did that, yeah. at least, did that impact you at all anymore? Well, did it impact more? That's an interesting question because, I mean, obviously I was trying to speak on these issues before what happened. And I think these things have happened, of course, throughout history. And now uh, people that weren't paying attention as much as they, you know, I won't say as they should have been, but that weren't, just weren't paying attention uh, so much for whatever reasons, just going on with their lives, um, were forced to deal with a, a very ugly part of what's going on in America and what has been going on in America for hundreds of years. And um, has it affected me more? (sighs) Well, what affects you more, I think, is all the press and seeing it as much as you see it. And, uh, and, you know, I knew it was happening, of course. Everybody did. It was sensitive to this, you know, these issues. But to see it... uh, as often, you know, as we are in this, actually, you know, see videos and all of this, of course, it's going to hit you probably more emotionally in some ways. But what's wrong is wrong. And it's always been wrong. And um, that's why we made these songs. So which one at this time still stands out the most to you? Out of the music on the record? No, no, on that album specific. I'm sorry. And yeah, you mean on, on social science? Yeah, record? on social science waiting game. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm, I can't really pick a song that stands out because, you know, it's a song, it was like a marriage, right, between the music and the lyric. And, um, you know, my job as a producer is really trying to get that marriage happening, you know, as a songwriter and a producer and make sure that the music is as best as it can be and uh, that the lyric and the message is as well. And, you know, worked very hard at all of the songs to try to get that marriage happening. Um, Some songs were harder than others and some I had to go back in on and rework and rework until I felt like the music was strong enough. Um, Or that I felt like, you know, the vibe and the production was, was strong enough. Um, you know, <laughs> it's interesting how that works. Ah, uh, I love every second so, of it. And so it's hard for me to pick like, you know, one song or anything being more relevant than the others. But, um, yeah, I mean, I really, I mean, I like all of them for different reasons, but yeah, Bells of course stands out for me due to all that's happened. And, um, Trap in the American Dream stands out because, well, I put it first on the record because I felt like it really spoke or speaks to the band as a whole. And I feel like Trap really captured the spirit of the band in different ways musically. It did uh, because, you know, it's it's not a simple song. You know, it's, it's in five... Um, it shows, you know, strong composition. It also has, as you know, rap, rapping on it from Casa. So uh, it shows, yeah, absolutely. And, um, 
you know, shows the band. It has soloing, you know, great solo from Morgan. And uh, it shows all the different things that make this band special. So that's why I led with that song. And, you know, the message, everything, you know, came together in a certain way on that song that I felt set up the rest of the album. Mm -hmm. And how did you, what made you decide to have him on there or the rap in general? Well, it was always part of it. I mean, if you take the rap away from the whole album, there'll be something missing. <laughs> no, I meant what made yeah. you decide to choose him? I saw anything special. You said, well, you, yeah, but you did just ask me rap in oh, general. Sorry. So that's why I was saying, like, <laughs> the rap part was always uh, part of the concept of the band. Merging uh, jazz musicians, jazz performance with R&B elements, with, you know, a lot of the vocals. Um with rap elements, with different rappers, uh, with indie rock elements, with some of the you know compositions and the guitars, uh, with um, you know elements that may feel like somebody's been listening to classical music, you know, like, like even Trapped, uh, with Aaron, you know, who has definitely studied and listened to classical composers, so. That's kind of the, the basis of the whole album, you know, jazz, R&B, hip hop, classical, indie rock, you know, all of it coming together. Um, and I knew that I wanted different rappers and different voices on the record like that. I mean, not necessarily different singers, but different voices with uh, the poetry and rap, spoken word and rap. And um, so Casa was the last person to join the band. And I knew I wanted a person in the band that could be a DJ and an MC um, because I knew I couldn't take on the road all these different guests. So I needed somebody that could, you know, really handle the effects and the, the things that an MC, I mean, DJ would do as well as uh, any place we needed spoken word and rap. So Casa um, was the perfect person because he understands jazz. He understands all of the the areas that um, we were trying to address, you know, he was perfect. Okay. I've been a fan of his for a while and I knew him first as a drummer. And then I, I, I remember I was on a rooftop of a hotel with him somewhere in Europe. I can't remember what city we were in. And he was playing with Theo Croker and Aaron was there. Uh, we were having a drink on the rooftop after a gig, uh, it was my Money Jungle group and Casa was a deal. And anyway, he started talking about how he raps and I was like, what? <laughs> so then he just, you know, started rapping, you know, like, leaned over in my ear and started, he said, yeah, this is something I'm working on. And I was like, what? Who knew? <laughs> and um, yeah, from that moment, I was like, you know, looking for opportunities. Oh, to do something together. Like I said, that was a great pickup. And there's one other thing I have to ask you about this album. The second part, when it switched over, mm -hmm. what made you decide to add that in? Well, it's just a part of who I am and part of what, you know, my, at this point in my career, a big part of my musical expression is to have no boundaries. So um, improvising and composing on the spot is... Um, is really, I don't know, important to me right now. Uh, 
not having forms to adhere to uh, and just being free. And so I, on the very first day of our recording session, and it was just so happened that Esperanza was with us because there was a snowstorm and she was just hanging out with us. But um, the very first day of our recording session, I said, well, you know, I want to try this idea. I want the, you know, the second half of the album to be free uh, and see what happens. And let's not, not do no second takes and no fixes. And let's just go play one hour straight with no prepared, you know, forms, nothing. And we lasted about 45, 46 minutes. You know, we didn't have a watch necessarily. So I wasn't even sure how much time had passed. And it just seemed like it ended in a natural place. And it was close to an hour, but not quite. And um, that, you know, what you hear is what you got. And I'm very proud of that because um, I think it shows our musicianship, you know, on, on another no, it level. It does. Yeah. It shows that you guys are legit world class for a reason. <laughs> Okay, well, next thing I wish to know is, so what made you found what you founded at Berkeley School of Music? What what, what did I find? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry. What is it? The Jazz and Gender (laughs) Justice Department. Yeah, okay, so it's called um, Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice. So it's... um, not a department, you know, like with studies, uh, like people, when people say gender studies, that is a department. And um, it's not a class. Uh, it's an institute which just creates um, performance uh, opportunities and learning space um, for students that are, that want to learn in a uh, egalitarian setting where they nurtured and where um, it, it's open to both uh, to everybody actually on the entire gender spectrum so you know women men transgender non-binary um, the one thing I will not do is populate it more men than anybody else but um, you know as long as we can have gender balance there uh, it's good and because you know young men, are just as important in in this gender equity and gender justice uh, movement, so to say, as as young women. So, uh, and and everyone on the gender spectrum. And what's so interesting is how many young men want to be in our institute, and they, I think, a lot of them feel like they don't want to have to be uh, performative. In, in, with masculinity or perform, they, they feel just as nurtured and comfortable, you know, feel that there's a safe environment for them to be themselves and not have to, you know, kind of fall into some of the uh, normal trends that have happened with masculinity in the music and sometimes even toxic masculinity in the music. So that part I didn't expect, but, um, you know, has, has, has been revealed in some ways, you know, to me. Um, and then there's people that don't even understand, you know, what we're doing. And you know what I mean? That don't understand, uh, that think it's an institute for women. And uh, it's not an institute for women. It's an institute with that principle, gender justice and racial justice uh, as 
our guiding principles. And, you know, we won't stop there. You know, uh, uh, we, we're really trying to dismantle the, the uh, patriarchal system, you know, that has, has been in place. We're doing our part in rejecting that and disrupting that. Um, so the, 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 the defined norm has been white, male, able-bodied, Christian, uh, with resources, um, straight, you know, all of these things has, you know, been the defined norm and, you know, kind of the, the group that has tried to control uh, society. So we're really kind of rejecting that. And that's uh, kind of it in a nutshell. Okay. And I love the staff you have assembled for it too. So shout out to all those wonderful women that are there with you. Thank you, yeah. So, and uh, yeah. that would be Chris Davis, Linda Mahan O, and Val Genti. And we also have um, some ensembles this semester taught by Alain Millet, uh, who's a piano instructor at Berkeley. He's a French, French musician, great pianist and producer, writer. And Edmar Cologne, who's um, also a faculty member at Berkeley. Yeah, Berkeley leading the way. That's all I could say on that. So... Next thing I wish to know more about. So the movie Soul comes out. Mm-hmm. I loved it. And then I only find out that you were one of the people who helped. Uh, what did you do? You helped decide and the music staff and everything? No, I was, you know, a consultant and um, music and cultural consultant. And basically that just means um, helping them get it right when it comes to the culture of jazz. Um, that's the one thing I really love about Pixar is they really do their homework and they engage people that they trust to say, you know, this is cool. This is not cool. This could be worked on more. You know, we don't talk like that. We don't, you know, do this. Oh, that's great. You know, you know, just kind of going through it with them. And, um, yeah, that's what I did. So it was a great experience for me. I never, you know, been involved uh, with a film, you know, or especially animation, uh, mm. before. So. The I was just was very nice. happy. Yeah. Yeah. The soundtrack. Yeah. It's great. And, um, Tia Fuller played the alto for Darth Thea and Linda Mehano played the bass. Um, and, uh, Marcus Gilmore played the drums. I think Roy Haynes may have played some too. I'm not sure. I know they were both there at the session. I'm not sure uh, if it was all Marcus or if Roy played too. And um, John Batiste, of course, you know, was was the composer and uh, pianist. So uh, they did an amazing job. And um, I feel like uh, the responsibility that they took on with getting it right with um, black culture was was really impressive. Uh, they, they even uh, did trips from Berkeley, California, to D.C. to for their staff to go to the African American Museum in D.C. So all of that is really when people try to get it right. That's that's the kind of effort we need. 
That's a side note I never knew about, sending the staff down there to D.C. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you, you know, nowadays people could be born in the 80s and 90s and not even really aware. I mean, of course, history books don't get it right in, in elementary school or high school. So unless you're really studying this stuff in college, um, you know, post, you know, secondary school, um, you're not going to understand the nuances. You just understand what some of these jive history books say. So um, a a trip to the museum really kind of helps to put Black culture and uh, Black history in perspective. Well, the next thing I wish to know, ma'am. So what is something that people misunderstand about the music world? About the music world? I mean, you've been in since 11. So that out of all the people, I think you should know. Hmm. Um, oh, goodness. That, that is easy? That's probably the first thing. It's a very difficult road. Um, you have to have a strong work ethic. You have to. Uh, you have to. Things always take longer than you think. I mean, it's it's not a fast road. It's not a short road, um, and you have to work hard. And sometimes I've been working hard. I'm working harder right now than I ever have, and I've been working hard for forty forty five years. And it hasn't gotten easier. And as far as work, it's gotten, you know, more complex. And um, you have to just keep pushing the envelope. So I think that's the first misconception. Um, Otherwise, uh, just, you know, people think it's glorious and uh, glamorous, you know. And um, I think that that part is really interesting. I kind of would always get tired of people. So, oh, you're so lucky. You know, you're traveling all these places. They don't, you know, understand the all the early mornings, all the, you know, all day with no food, no sleep, and you know all of those things, just to get on the stage for that ninety minutes and feel what you want to feel, but all of the other stuff is is tiresome and, and can be burdensome. But but we do it, you know. Could you tell us one way it got harder? Oh, just with the, the the longer you live, you know, the more information, you know, you know, the more you know, the more you know you need to know. The more you know, the more responsibility you have. The more you know, the more you understand how much you didn't know. So, I mean, yeah, even in this pandemic, I mean, I'm re- rarely sleeping. There's so much work for me to do. And uh, so much research and uh, so much, so many online uh, meetings and platforms and things, you know, all, it's all in the mission, you know, the mission of spreading uh, more information about this incredible art form and about the issues, the problems and the joys of it, about um, doing the work, you know, to inspire others and, you know, contributing to such a strong and rich legacy and making sure that you've left the world a better place than it was. And I think that, you know, that's all part of uh, the mission of artists. And I know it's part of my personal mission. Um, And I didn't really come to it fully until the last 
four or five years where I realized, oh, wow, you know, time is running and I need to make sure that I'm doing all that I can to make this whole scene and, you know, society in general better than uh, it was the day before, if I can. Whatever we can all do to chip in on that, it's, it's, it's no time right now for people to um, live in their silos and just, you know, be self-centered and, you know, it's about the group. When we all succeed, you know, when, when, when that's what's important. You know, not just uh, your own success, but it's the success of the group and moving things forward and moving the music forward. And, um, you know, I like that. That's a much deeper, multi-layered answer than I expected. <laughs> so what would you like to... T- what would you suggest or tell somebody that is going into the music field right now? Um, I think I would tell people to understand the business as much as possible. Um, do all the homework that you need to. There are books. When I was just out of college, I guess, uh, there was a music business good. There was a music business book called Hitman. So I read that because I wanted to know as much as I could about the players. And uh, when I say the players, I mean the business players and uh, just, you know, the business in general and the mentality around it. Uh, now there's a book, um, I think it's called Everything You know, Need to Know About the Music Business or something like that. Um, and I think that some people are able to take classes, of course, uh, in, in school, but I think that you have to do this kind of work on your own. And some of it's trial and error. Uh, there's so much information on the, on the internet. It's, you know, our, our encyclopedia, so to say. So I think we need to be proactive about these things so that we're not catching up and so that we're uh, making this stereotype uh, of musicians only focus on their music or their art you know, that we're really chipping away at that stereotype. And it's a lot, you know, because it's, they're both kind of full-time jobs. So there's a lot to do, but I think we owe it to ourselves to know as much as we can because we have to recognize that we're, we're brands, we're, we're our own business. So even if you have other people doing things for you, you have to know how to do it. So that's, you know, one really big thing. And that's actually given that you make good art, that you're a good player, that you're, you know, a good producer or whatever it is you're doing, a songwriter. Um, I'm saying all that, but it has to, you know, be on the heels of you having done the time uh, to bring your artistry up to a certain level. Because then, you know, the other side of that is you'll have people that really just focus on everything else and uh, not the artistry. So I guess it depends on where you want to go and what you want to do. Well, if someone was to want your success, what is one of the key things you would tell them? Well, that was one really big key thing. No, no, no. The key thing, like, it's the main thing to focus on from the jump right out of university. Yeah, well, I think that's what I was trying to just say. Okay, you have I'm to sorry. Focus. <laughs> no, that's- that's okay. I don't need you no. Know, there's no reason to be sorry. We're just having a discussion, um, but I just feel that you have to be focused equally, you know, on developing your artistry and developing your knowledge outside of the, the art itself, you know, on the business end of it. 
Uh, there's so many things that go along with being successful that are not related to your playing your instrument or whatever your discipline is. So that's what I mean. Like when I say business, that's everything from publishing, you know, and all the aspects of if you write a song, you know, what can happen from streaming to uh, just record labels or uh, um, these various platforms, how we get our music out there to know all of those steps, um, you know, as far as marketing, manufacturing your product, if you're doing a physical product, um, distribution of your product. Uh, but, you know, even in marketing, it's, it's the sky's the limit. You know, it's like the wild, wild west. There's so many things you can do and there's no, there are some rules, but there's no set rules. I mean, the rules keep changing. So you can be on the, the vanguard of that or you can, you know, follow status quo. And I'm not saying either is better or one is better than the other, but you have to do something. You, you can't just make a good product anymore and then hope that it gets out there or if, just because it's good that people will recognize it. So there's all these other you know, things that you have to do. And so much of it does stem around marketing. Okay. So mm -hmm. what is something that you noticed about the music scene recently? Any big changes? Um, well, the biggest change is going from the traditional way records were made and music got to people. Yeah, independent artists, um, that's what we see now more than we see the traditional uh, label deals and the traditional way things were done when I was coming up. So it's been great for the music because people, it levels the playing field in a way that people can get their product up, but it does take a lot more work if you're independent. Um, so that's a huge change, but it's been good because there haven't been as many people as gatekeepers, you know, as many people telling you what to do or what kind of music to make or deciding who gets played or who gets to put music out. And that's been great for jazz because the music has, you know, had a bit of a renaissance because people are mixing genres a lot more and moving the music forward because they're able to be true to themselves and be true to their artistry and not have a label or a manager or whomever telling them uh, how to fit into a marketable box. Okay. I actually agree with you on that. And that's one of the big changes that I like about not just your album, for many other people who are not only nominated for Grammys, but just in the whole federal within the past two, three years. Mm -hmm. uh, so where do you think jazz will be in 10 years? Uh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I mean. More mainstream, more. No, I think the mainstream part is. So any jazz has always been progressive, just like hip hop, right? Like, where will hip hop be in 10 years? We're not going to go back to um, Public Enemy or uh, Sugar Hill Gang. You know what I mean? <laughs> hip hop is not going back that direction. And the people, the younger people and the innovative thinkers and creative thinkers in the genre of hip hop and jazz are always pushing things forward. You know, there's been something about jazz 
especially in the 80s and 90s, to some degree, that has tr well, tried to maintain it as something from the past, you know, something that was done already that we're like a classical music, you know, that we keep, we keep uh, replaying the same things uh, with the same way for the most part with, you know, some changes, but pretty much, you know, kind of similar approaches to sound, to rhythm, to form. But uh, now, you know, it's, it's different. And jazz has always had that component of moving forward, uh, just like hip hop. So I don't feel, I think we're at a place where without these labels and people putting, making jazz something of the past, uh, without people that are doing that, then uh, all it can do is move forward. So I definitely feel like that era is hopefully over. Not that people shouldn't play classic jazz, but then we just call it that, you know, just like people play classic R&B. So an oldie section for jazz. Sort of, yeah. Okay. I can mess with that. I have no problem with that. <laughs> so this one, I'm generally, like, I'm 100% curious. So if you could remove all the barriers and all constraints, what type of music project would you make? You said all the barriers and all the what? Constraints. Like you got to take your ideal album with no right. budget restrictions. Yeah, I think I did that with this last project. I made the album that I wanted to make. I collaborated with the people I wanted to. Um, I had a focus. I had a vision. And, you know, I worked with people that had similar, uh, with, you know, where we were in alignment, you know, with focus and vision. And I always wanted to, you know, have a band, you know, be in a band, have a band project to contribute to. So it wasn't really just coming from me, you know, the material and all that. So I think I did that. And, you know, now the question is, what are we going to do next? You know, what kind of record are we going to make and how, you know, will this continue? Um I've been fortunate, you know, like even if you look through my last couple of records, uh, the last three records before this new one, uh, I was all doing... Been different. That's why I'm curious. What would be next for you? Well, I, I, but I, yeah. Well, okay. What would be next? I, I thought you said like without constraints and no, all that. So that those also, are the records. But... <laughs> well, I had constraints because I think you have to have constraints to make something good to some degree because it's all about how can you push a boundary if you have no boundaries, I'm not sure that would sound good. You know, I mean, you're making me think about something that I hadn't really thought of before, but I think that uh, making something with a given material is part of having a vision, you know, like, you know, you, when you put a vision down, if there are no boundaries and no constraints, then your vision will just keep shifting. And then you may never get it done. You know, I think it's important to have some some constraints to, uh, to, you know, to make an outline of what you want to do, even though it may shift and change and these boundaries may be expanded. Um, so anyway, what's next, I think, is just another social science record. Hopefully uh, we can get to that 
um, later this year, you know, start writing soon and be able to start recording later this year. That's my hope. Uh, and thinking about some of these subject matters that we brought up on the first one, but thinking about it differently, thinking about how do we point to a, a different future? How do we imagine a future opposed to um, reporting or imagining the present, you know, or the past? Okay. And that I'm definitely looking forward towards. Thank you. And you got a lot more talking points within the past year alone. Yeah. <laughs> That's so true, right? So yeah. is there any jazz artist you'd like to give a shout out or talk about? Oh. You can yeah. say no. It's all right. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, for me and my life and my history and story uh you know someone that's so important to me is Wayne Shorter I don't remember if we've even talked about him yet or not but um he's you know it's, it's such an inspiration to me and always has been since I was 21 and started playing with him and it really since before that um and Herbie Hancock as well and I just have had the amazing opportunity to play uh kind of extensively with both of them and um, I'm sure I shouted out Jack DeJanette already as my mentor and somebody else that had a really big influence on me and still does. Um, and then, you know, there's an incredible host of new young musicians, you know, that are experimenting musically and, and pushing these boundaries and being creative um, and making their own boundaries opposed to the boundaries that other people, meaning like the business, the industry, puts on them. And I'm really all about that. Matter of fact, uh, I have a playlist on Spotify that I made. It's like a five-hour playlist of uh, what, is what I I'll make sure to tag it also. Okay. Yeah, I call it um, Black Contemporary and Creative Music. Okay. Um, yeah, and if you just go to my Spotify page, I don't really know how to. <laughs> I got that. I can handle that. <laughs> so yeah. before we go, we'd like to give a shout out and show our respects to the artists who came before us. So in your case, because you're more seasoned, I don't like to give the artists, but I'm going to tell you an instrument and you tell me who you would like to play. Who I would like to play. play? Like play on, they will play in that situation, okay? You mean like who I would like to play with? Yeah, who you would like to play with, yes. Okay, so these are people that are still alive. Or in the past, dead or alive, <laughs> okay? So on trumpet, who would it be? Ooh. Um, oh. And you only want me to pick one person? <laughs> you can pick, pick two. I prefer okay. one, though. <laughs> I mean, the first people, there's two people that came to mind immediately, and it was um, Book a Little and Freddie Hubbard. Uh, and maybe, you know, that's because, I don't know, maybe Miles Davis just seemed too much of a stretch. but um, or, or maybe because I played with Wayne and Herbie, so I feel that kind of connection in a way. Uh but I really, you know, loved Booker Little and felt like he left us too soon. 
So understood. No one's gonna argue. Oh wait, with Don that. Cherry though. Don Cherry. Okay. <laughs> I would love to have played with Don Cherry. <laughs> I think I'd have to put him first, actually. On reads. Um, I don't know. Um, I used to wish I could play with Charles Lloyd when I was in college, and that never happened. He's still with us, so you never know. Um, of course, you know, I think everybody grew up loving John Coltrane and wishing they could play with John Coltrane, you know. Um, wishing they had had that experience to some degree. Uh, or Charlie Parker. I mean, those are just the legendary people. I, I have played with Robbie Coltrane, and that was a really amazing experience. Um, I've played with him a few times and uh, was recently listening to one of those times and really felt a certain connection, you know, to him and his playing and, uh, yeah, hope to do more. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, so many people out there, young, you know, and, and, and mature. Um, I love Mark Turner. Um, yeah, just a lot of people. I, I, this is really difficult. <laughs> understood, understood. On bass. Yeah, I mean, I've played kind of with the people that I love already. So for me, it's almost like going back in time or something. Um, I hadn't played with Dave Holland uh, much until the last couple of years where I've done a few gigs, I think like three. Uh, and that was incredible each time. Um, I always wanted to play with him, but felt like there would be a good hookup um, because he plays so much with Jack and Jack's such a big influence on me. Um, but okay. yeah, I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> On keys. Oh, uh, you know, I mean, I I played with my dream person, Herbie Hancock. You know, for so long, um, to the point like when you know, whenever I hear things, I kind of hear Herbie in my head, um, but. It's interesting because I was so close to McCoy Tyner and his family, but I never really played with him other than in his house. I was that close to you know him that I would go to his house and stay as a kid, uh, you know, late teenager, and we would play in the house. But um, I never played a gig with him, so I wish that had happened. Um, okay. Who would be your vocalist? Oh my goodness, that's just <laughs> that's just crazy because uh, yeah, there's so many amazing vocalists that you know. Gee, <laughs> too many lists. Okay, fine. Let's skip that one. I mean, you know. <laughs> And, well, I just mean it's just legendary people. This is such a, you know, it's hard to make a dream band because if I put all these people together, it wouldn't work. So, I mean, you know, everybody loves Billie Holiday. Um, everybody loves Ella Fitzgerald. I mean, I used to hang out with Ella Fitzgerald as a kid, but I never played with her. Um, Betty Carter, you know, that's just the level right there. I, I did play with her, but, you know, just sitting in when she came to Boston, 
Um, she let me sit in, but okay. Yeah. And who would you trust to play drums with? To play drums with a person? Yes. Um, I mean, I'm working on something right now with Jack to do a presentation where we're playing together, kind of in this remote vibe. Um, but of course, he would be one. Uh, I played a couple of times with Brian Blade together with some, you know, situations where they had two drummers. And um, that's always a pleasure. Love Brian. Uh, love Bill Stewart. Um, so that would be another person, maybe. Uh, who else? <laughs> There's so many amazing drummers. So, uh, And all of them, the drummers, you know, are sensitive and uh, open. So anybody that's sensitive and open, we're, we're going to have a good time doing something together, creating something together. And uh, kind of now during this COVID area and this stage of my life, I'm reaching out, you know, to more people and um, looking for those kinds of opportunities because drummers don't get to hang out with each other so much because you don't go on the road together. So you have to make that effort. So uh, hopefully there'll be some more of those kinds of collaborations in the future. That I'll be looking forward towards. So, <laughs> ma'am, will you be nice enough to tell everyone your social media, your website, where to reach out to you? Ah, yes, terrylynncarrington.com. And, um, of course, you know, if you search my name with Instagram or Facebook, you know, or Twitter, you'll find me. I mean, mostly Instagram and Facebook. But, um, yeah, All right. that would be it. <laughs> uh, Ma'am, so I just want to say thank you for joining us. I wish you... All the luck on the Grammys. Like, hopefully you win that category. Make uh, sure you say hi to John when he's over there because he came on. He's a nice guy also. Okay. And everyone, this is Leanna from Improv Exchange. Thank you all and have a good day. All right. Thank you. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>